chapter 11 this morning as we're continuing in our exposition through the gospel of John. Through the gospel of John and this morning we are looking at probably one of the most well-known passages uh, in the New Testament and that's the section regarding the raising of Lazarus from the dead. And John chapter 11, and I'm going to read not the whole chapter, but I'm going to read selected portions just to get the, the, the context, and we're going to uh, make some application. But uh, So I'm just going to read some selected verses to the main event of what took place in John 11. And it'll be on the screen, and you can follow. I trust that you brought your Bibles. John chapter 11, beginning at verse 1. Now, a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the town of Mary, and her sister Martha. It was that Mary who anointed the Lord with fragrant fragrant oil and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. Therefore the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. And when Jesus heard that, he said, This sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he had heard that he was sick, he stayed two more days in the place where he was. We're going to skip over to verse 20 and 21. And then Martha, as soon as she heard that Jesus was coming, went and met him. But Mary was sitting in the house. And then Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Verse 32. And then when Mary came to where Jesus was, she saw him. And she fell down at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here. My brother would not have died. Verse 39. And Jesus, standing there at the tomb, said, Take away the stone. And Martha, the sister of him who was dead, the sister of Lazarus, said to him, Lord, by this time there is a stench, for he has been dead four days. Verse 43. Now when he had said these things, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And he who had died came out, bound, hand and foot, with grave clothes, and his face was wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, Loose him and let him go. Father, we thank you for your holy word today. We thank you that we hear your voice as we read it, as we study it today. Lord, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be that which is acceptable in your sight. And we pray these things in your mighty name. And everybody said, Amen. 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 Or oh me, as they used to say in my church. John chapter 11. Again, a passage that is uh, historically significant. Uh, Notice again in your Bibles that it is dealing with a real identified person. In verse 1, it says, now a certain man. It's very pointed. There was this, it's very specific. There was a certain man named Lazarus. And just in case you're not sure who this Lazarus is, he wants to make sure that you know that this is the brother of Mary and Martha. So it's a real event around a real person person. It's a real situation. In fact, there are eyewitnesses. As you read on in the passage, and and again, if you have your Bibles, I hope you do open, and it says that there were eyewitnesses. There were people that were gathered around Mary and Martha to comfort them, to be with them during this time of loss. Verse 19, and says there were many Jews who joined the women around Mary and Martha. And then verse 31 says that there were other Jews who were with her in the house comforting her. Um, And then many of the Jews in verse 45 had come to Mary and they saw the things that Jesus did and believed in him. So this wasn't just some little obscure, private little uh, event. This was something that was done 
in the public of a well-known person that was well-known in the community, and there were a lot of eyewitnesses and people to witness and see what is going on. This is not a parable. You know, Jesus spoke in parables in different places throughout the Bible, and parables are uh, earthly stories with a spiritual meaning. This is not a parable. This is not uh, a metaphor. This is not some... No, this is a real, actual event that Jesus demonstrated his, what we would say his deity or his godness, that he was God by raising somebody from the dead. Raising somebody from the dead. I don't know about you, but that is very impressive. I know there's lots of people that go around claiming to, uh, you know, have raised people from the dead or whatever, but uh, I, you know, forgive me, but I'm naturally a skeptic on some of these things. This is a real, this is the real deal here. This is recorded here in Scripture. Now, the reason I point out about the historicity, the event, and because I don't want us to get away from that, but also want us to kind of look at this passage and kind of put on a wider lens and look at maybe some application of how this event, this man being raised literally from the dead after being buried for four days in a tomb, how it, I believe it illustrates and how it can encourage us as followers of Christ, as believers, that regardless of whatever circumstances, obstacles, impossibilities, death sentence, whatever you want to put on front of it, that regardless of what we face, what may be impossible in our strength, in our eyes, there is nothing out of the possibility of God's power and strength. And that we can draw some great encouragement from that. You know, somebody, I have a quote in one of my Bibles that I remember somebody said, and I always remember it. And it said, true preaching is preaching faith to the faithful. Think about that. True preaching is preaching faith to the faithful. We're people of faith. We're here in a community of faith. But guess what? That doesn't mean that we're always people of faith, right? Sometimes we're more people of doubt, people of questioning, people of wondering whether something is real. I know God may be working in that person's life, but I'm not sure he cares enough about me to be interested in my life. Well, here today, we want to encourage one another in the Word. The Bible says in Romans 10, 17, that faith comes by what? Comes how? Comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. So today we want to draw from the Word of God. And so what do you do as a follower of Jesus when you and I, and at various degrees, and certainly I know many of you are facing some really uh, humanly impossible situations in a lot of ways, but what is the plan that when we are facing these impossible scenarios, these situations, what and overwhelmed by the circumstance, what, what are we to do? Well, there's several options. We can uh, be defeated, just give up. Certainly been there, done that. Just throw in the towel. You may not even have a towel anymore. You've thrown it in. You've got, you don't have any more towels. You're given air towels because you've given up so many times. Feel defeated. Uh, doubt. Does God really love me. We sang about the love of God. I love that, that song. Is that a new song? Okay, good. I like that. Tell uh, y'all keep that in the, in the top 40 there or whatever it is y'all do. But um, then they do a good job. They were down a few, but I tell you, uh, Melissa, Teresa, team, Jim, I'm going to miss Abby, Lynette, Brian, of course, did I get everybody that was here today? Yeah, I had Don was is sick, ladies gone. But I tell you, we don't miss a beat, right? They led us faithfully in worship, and I hope that you're grateful for that. But we doubt. Going back, we doubt. We we just we just wonder, you know, if God really loved me, would He allow this to happen? Uh, what about just despair? All these things ultimately can lead us into just despair, where we feel like we don't have any hope. There's nothing, uh, you remember in uh, the movie Shawshank Redemption, you remember what Red said? He said, hope 
Now they remember in prison. And hope is a what? Dangerous thing. Because when you're in that solitary, when you're in that prison, he said, look, the worst thing you can do is torture yourself with hope and thinking you're ever going to get out or there's going to be a better day. It's a dangerous thing. So you might as well just accept the despair. You know, there's a lot of Christians that kind of live like that, don't they? They, 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 they live in by the theology of red. Uh, if you don't know what the movie is, none of that means anything to you. But uh, they show it about every other week on one of the channels there. But but hope is not a dangerous thing. Sometimes it's the only thing that we can hang on to. But when you lose hope and you're in despair because you're overwhelmed by the tsunami of bad news, that's a tough place to be. But I want to encourage you today and say there's a fourth option. And it's not defeat. It's not doubt. It's not despair. But I think there's another option that when we face the tsunami of discouragement facing an impossible situation. And that's what I would say is dependency. Dependency. There's one thing that any trial, any tough situation, and again, I don't want to minimize and saying, you know, having a, uh, one example is as bad as other examples. You know, look, when you're going through a hard situation, it doesn't help me to say, well, you know, there's, there's people around the world that have it worse than you. Okay, I appreciate that, but that doesn't help me. I, I mean, you know what I mean? I know they mean well when they say that, but that doesn't help me. I, I, I want them to be well too, but I'm going through this darkness. I'm walking through this valley of a shadow of death. And so what do these things should do that when you look at the Word of God, they should, should, is the emphasis here, Push us, drive us, not into doubt, not in despair, not into any, not just in defeat, but they should drive us into a greater dependency upon Christ. That when the pegs of life get knocked out from under me, I'm hanging on, but you know what? I'm grateful that it isn't me hanging on, he's hanging on to me. Because if it was dependent on me hanging on, oh, I would have slipped through the knot a long time ago. But that he's holding me. He is sustaining me. His security. And so the dependency is what should drive us. Listen, Romans 8.28 is always true. Is always true. And we know that all things... There's no exception clause. All things work together for good to those that love God and to those who are called according to His purpose. Spurgeon said, If we cannot believe God when circumstances seem to be against us, we do not really believe Him at all. And so God wants you and I to be dependent on Him. And I don't know what this morning, I know some, some of you and some of your things you're dealing with. Mary and Martha, here in chapter 11, they were facing down an impossible, overwhelming situation. Their brother died. Three years ago, I had two brothers within about three months of each other die. Uh, there was sorrow. There was sadness. There was, there was a resignation to his death. And sometimes we have a resignation to our situation, and it could be health reports, it could be bad news from a diagnosis, a financial security issue, marriage or family, personal depression, you know, whatever it is, that is your impossibility that you can't seem to get around this and you've just relinquished into despair, hope, or doubt. Today, let's allow God's Word to build our faith. Can we do that? Can we allow God's Word to build our faith? I need faith. I need faith, and I think some of you do too. I think all of you do. And let's allow the Word of God to build our faith and build that sense of saying, God, I want to grow in dependency upon you even though I walk through this valley of the shadow of death. See, that wonderful psalm, I don't have it here in my notes, Psalm 23, says, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, what is he saying? But I'm dependent on you. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Though this is a situation, I'm leaning up against you, holy God. 
to sustain me and to lead me. And this morning, I want us to look at five principles from John 11 and your your bulletin this morning. There's a little blue sheet, a listener's guide, that you can be a much more engaged listener. And if you need the word of the Lord, then I, I trust that you'll uh, do that. And some of you that have trouble focusing, that'll help you focus on on the word and, and draw more out of it. And uh, so there's five principles in John 11 to help us to learn. And that's the title of today's message is learning to trust Jesus when facing the impossible. And I intentionally put learning because nobody's arrived, right? I haven't. Learning, learning to lean, the old song says. Learning to lean, learning to trust Jesus when facing the impossible. Notice this first principle, number one, is impossible situations are always opportunities for God to be glorified through my life. Now, I'll be honest with you, I'm like, Lord, can't you find another way to be glorified? I mean, can't you do something with the birds and the trees and the stars? I mean, can you just you know, leave me out of this for a while, right? But that isn't the way it works, is not it? We belong to God. In fact, more so, Jesus says, than the birds and the trees. We are God's special purchase and promise. Let me show you what I'm talking about. In chapter 11, verse 3 and 4, Therefore the sisters sent to him, sent to Jesus, saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. And when Jesus heard that, he said, This sickness is not unto death, but for what? The glory of God, that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Jesus said something similar in regards to the blind man that was healed back in John 9. Remember in John 9, verse 1 through 3? Now, as Jesus passed by, he saw a man who was blind from birth. Another impossibility. Blind from birth. And his disciples asked him kind of the common myth that was uh, in their teaching of that day. Rabbi, of course, teacher, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? They presumed that any bad tragedies were a result of some kind of generational curse in, in the past generation. And Jesus answered, neither this man nor his parents sinned, but that the works of God should be revealed in him. Now, those are unique situations. Those are unique situations in the timeline and ministry of Jesus. But there is still an overriding principle, is that God uses and works through our life, through the good and through the bad. And guess what? I find that he works, it seems like, more through the bad through the tough times than through the good times. Have you found that to be the case? But if we let him, the problem is we fall into the despair, the doubt. You know, we just, we just bail. But he says, look, this has happened. It is not a sickness unto death, but it is for the glory of God. We sometimes have a little struggle with the glory of God. Look at Psalm 57, 5. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be above all the earth. Let your glory be above all the earth. Uh, Jesus in John 1.14 says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. So when we talk about glory, again, that's a little kind of nebulous concept. What does that mean? Well, in the Hebrew, the word glory is the word kabod. The word kabod in the Hebrew means heavy. It means weighty. That means that there's a sense of God that is weighty and heavy in the situation. The glory of God, you know the picture in the Old Testament, when the glory of God came into the small space of the tabernacle or the the temple. It was the weightiness of God. When Isaiah looked up and saw the glory of God in Isaiah 6, what was he experiencing? He was experiencing the weightiness, the heaviness of the presence of God. It is God intervening. It is God making himself known. It is the glory 
of God. It is the unmistakable heaviness, the weight of this transcendent God moving and working in a finite situation. So Jesus is saying, this is not a sickness unto death, but this is for the glory of God. You're going to see, the, you're going to see God throw his weight around in this miracle. Do you hear what I'm saying? You're going to see God's heaviness of intervention in this miraculous situation. The glory of God, oftentimes speaking of the brightness, is what others see when God the Creator is allowed to shine through His creation. And who is His creation but you and me? How is the glory of God demonstrated when the presence of God is shining brightly through our lives? And what way is that oftentimes most demonstrable except when we are in an impossible situation? You see, because it really is not impressive to anybody when things are going well. We can say, yeah, God's good. Yes, all the time, right? Y'all missed your chance there. But it's when the weight of the world is crushing you that you say God is good. You see, that's the, that's the heaviness of His presence that's invaded in that little space of your life that leads us into a dependency. Remember the words of Paul that help us in 2 Corinthians 4, 6? For it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness who has shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. God wants to shine His glory through our impossibilities. Impossible situations are always opportunities for God to be glorified through my life. My life, your life as a believer, is to reflect the glory of God, that the unseen God is seen and made visible in your life. The unseen God is shining through your life. God will be glorified. And again, Paul helps us again in 1 Corinthians 6, 19-20. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God? And look at this. You are not your own. You are not your own. For you were bought at a price, therefore do what? Glorify God in your body, in your life. Apostle Paul, take your Bibles, and this won't be on the screen, take your Bibles and turn to Philippians chapter 1. I've mentioned this principle many times. Look over to Philippians chapter 1. Just kind of hang a, hang a right and find the book of Philippians. And this principle, I tell you, has, has uh, been so important to me, and that's probably why I repeat it time and time again. You know, we know what Paul says in chapter 1, verse 21. Again, it's not on the screen. You've got to do it the old-fashioned way. Remember what Paul said in verse 21? He said, for, me to, for, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Right? You say amen. Oh, that's good. That's good. We like that. You remember what he would say over in chapter 4 towards the end? He said, uh, you know, that I don't want to be found in my own righteousness, but to be found in Him, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection. That uh, everything that, uh, that I, I know what it's like to go through hard times and good times. Verse 13 of chapter 3, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching towards those things that are ahead. I press toward the goal of the prize. We, we, we know all those verses, but there's one verse back in chapter 1. In verse 12, that really gives us the sense of how the Apostle Paul was anchored in those truths, okay? And remember, when Paul wrote the letter to the church at Philippi, that's why it's called Philippians, not the Philippines, the Philippians, all right, the book of Philippians, 
to the church at Philippi. He's writing this letter, and it is called, uh, among several others, like Colossians and Ephesians, they call this the prison letters. Why? Because he was in prison when he was writing them. Just a wild hunch, but prison's not a fun thing. That's not a good thing, especially Paul, a preacher of righteousness, doing the will of God. God, why? Why is this? But you know what? We don't see that in Paul here. In fact, look with me, beginning at verse 8. He says, For God is my witness, how greatly I long to you all with the affection of Jesus Christ. Chapter 1, verse 8. And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in the knowledge and all discernment, that you may approve the things that are excellent and may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ, being filled with the fruits of righteousness which are by Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Now Paul just said these things are to be manifest, his prayer for the church is these things will be manifest in their life to the glory of God, but you know what? Paul had, to set, Paul had to live it for himself. He had to, he, had to make, uh, he had to apply this for himself. Look at verse 12. If you miss this, you'll, you'll, uh, I trust me, you'll, you'll be upset all day if you miss this. Maybe not all day, but, but look what he says. Where did I say Paul was? Where is he at? He's in prison. He's in jail. But he says in verse 12, he says, But I want you to know, I want you to know, brethren, that the things which happened to me, meaning my incarceration, the things that have happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel. Do you see what he's saying? He's saying, my situation, yeah, I'd rather be doing something else. But he says, but what has happened to me has actually advanced and purposed the kingdom of God, the glory of God. What is he saying? He's saying, my life, I, when he said, my life is Christ and to die is gain, when he said all those verses we love to quote, that means Paul settled the issue that God, I belong to you, and God, you operate my life as you best seem fit in your sovereign purpose and design. He said, you know the things that have happened to me? Okay, they didn't really help me per se, but you know what? It's not about me. I, I, I counted all those things as loss. They've actually advanced the glory of God, we could say. They've actually advanced the gospel. And if God's choosing to put me here advances his cause, Paul's like, you go God. You do what is in your purpose and your plan. Let me tell you something. I'm not, I'm not there. I can't always have that as an impulse. And I'm not necessarily saying that Paul had that as an impulse. But when he speaks about the glory of God, he lived it and saying, God, you glorify yourself in my life. And that should be our desire and our prayer. God, help us. You say, I, I, I need help there. God, help me and my Whatever this, 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 this death impossibility situation, Lord, help me to live in a dependency on you, to see that my life belongs to you, and to, to depend upon you, and that I'm going to obey you and leave all the consequences into your hands. That's principle number one. Notice, secondly, impossible situations. Secondly, Always operate under God's sovereign timetable. Look at some of these verses quickly. Verse 3. Sisters sent to the word to Christ, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. Verse 6. And when he heard that he was sick, he stayed two more days. Verse 21. Martha said, Lord, if you'd been here, he wouldn't have died. Mary, verse 32. Lord, if you'd been here, he wouldn't have died. When he went to the, the grave, he said, take the stone away. And Martha said, Lord, it's been four 
days. The body is in an advanced stage. By the way, you know, Jews did not embalm. That was something the Egyptians brought over. That's why the Jews buried the body before sundown. So the body was well into an advanced stage of, of uh, degrading. And in fact, the stench. I think if you have a King James, it says, and he stinketh. You get the idea. Now, I find what interesting is the fact that when Jesus heard this, what did he do? He stayed two more days. Do you pray with a sense of, Lord, don't you see this is an emergency? I need an answer now, like yesterday. Jesus did not seem on the surface. And you get a little bit of this with Mary and Martha. Lord, if. Look, they're not going to bail on him. But they're, you can hear it in, their, in the tone of the language. They're, they're disappointed. Lord, if you had just been here. If you had just been here. He wouldn't have died. This could have all been prevented. But here's the principle. What are we talking about? Is that impossible situations operate on God's sovereign. That means He is in absolute control. His timetable. Not our timetable. And we see that in this passage. Now again, the question is, why did He allow this event? Why did He allow four Days, verse 17. Four days. The body's decaying. The stench of death is... Don't open it. Let me read you something that R.C. Sproul said in his commentary on the Gospel of John that I think is helpful here regarding verse 17. He writes, The fact that Lazarus has been buried for four days may seem like an insignificant detail... But it helps us get at the reason for Jesus' delay in going to Bethany. He waited two more days. Among the rabbinic teachings, meaning the teaching of the rabbis, which wasn't always in, in congruence with Scripture, traditions, among the rabbinic teachings in Jesus' day was the idea, not necessarily a biblical idea, but this was a teaching that the rabbis taught, that when a person dies, the person's spirit hovered over the body for three days, and if somehow the body was resuscitated, the spirit returned to it. But according to the rabbinic tradition, the spirit departed after three days. Thus, Jesus came to Lazarus on what day? But they taught this teaching that after the third day, the spirit departed and any hope of resuscitation, they would say, would be impossible. In light of this teaching, Sproul says, it seems likely that Jesus wanted to get to Bethany intentionally after three days, and, had and once that had passed, he raised Lazarus from the grave and the Jewish authorities could not come back and say, well, hey, we've got accounts where this has happened easily within three days. That's nothing special. What did Jesus do? He intentionally waited when it appeared and seemed, even by their cultural understanding, so that it was definitely impossible that this guy was dead. Spiritually, physically, I mean, the whole way, I mean, he was dead. Jesus made sure, and hear what I'm saying, he piled on some impossibilities just for fun. You want to see a miracle? I'm going to show you a miracle. It's going to go, it's going to be, I'm going to, I'm not going to just rush to the scene. He delayed. 
You know what I thought of? I thought, remember the story about Elijah at Mount Carmel? Remember that? Was that in, uh, I always get it. We're going to get that thing fixed. I think that thing you put in there has now caused it, but we're going we're gonna to talk at, we're gonna, I'm pointing at Bob because I'm putting Bob on that. But anyway, that's a, that, you know about a thorn in our side, is that, that deal? All right, all right, pay, pay attention to me, all right? All right, forget that. You remember Elisha? You can look up and uh, make a mark of this in 1 Kings 18. You can read about it. I'm not going to read it, read through it. You remember what was going on in Israel? Elijah, the prophet, that Israel was seeped in idolatry, the gods of Baal, B-A-A-L, and Jezebel, and Ahab, and, and that whole scene. And, and so Elijah, a man of righteousness from God, challenged these false prophets of Baal and said, here's the deal. Whatever God answers by fire, that's the one we will serve. And they took him at his, the offer, if you will. And so they met at Mount Carmel, and it starts out with these false idolatrous prophets of Baal, a false deity, idol, demonic worship, and it says they went through all their whole deal, dancing you know, morning and night, cutting themselves, trying to call on someone that doesn't exist. Ain't going to happen. But they went through all the gyrations and the motions, and you know, false religion will just keep you working at it harder and harder, hoping that what you tried before will you know, maybe we'll try harder, and they're just trying for something. And the Bible says that when it was Elijah's turn, it says he first came to the altar that had been broken, torn down, and rebuilt the altar of the Lord, and put 12 stones in order, 12 for the 12 tribes of Israel. And again, he, they had them lay the wood on there, because remember, what was the challenge? The God who answers by what? Fire. Fire's the key. We want fire. But he does something really, again, he's going to layer with some impossibilities. You know what he has them do? He has them pour gallons of water on the wood. Two or three, I think three times, massive gallons of water that it was just filled to trenches. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm like, Elijah, you understand the challenge was fire, Fire, water, doesn't... What was he doing? He was, one, making sure that nobody would ever say that this was some sleight of hand by Elijah. And then when his confidence was so strong that he wasn't afraid to allow the impossibilities to just get piled one onto another, and what did the Bible say happened? That when he called upon the name of the Lord... The fire came down, and it says it licked up the water. I mean, imagine that sound. I don't think the Baal prophets enjoyed that sound, because that meant bad news for them. What did he do? He just layered the situation. So why? God, God would get the most glory over an impossible situation. And some of you may feel like, situations and bad news is just piling one on top of the other, but I want to encourage you today that God is not intimidated by impossibilities. Notice third principle. Impossible situations are purposed to strengthen our weak faith. Our weak faith. Back at verse 11. He told his disciples, he said, our friend Lazarus sleeps, but I go that I may wake him up. Sometimes the Bible uses um, sleep as a metaphor for death. Okay? It's not that they're sleeping, it's just a term that is all, but it means death. And the disciples, you know, you got to, verse 12, it says, they thought he was like asleep. Like, well, hey, that's good. Just let him sleep and he'll wake up, right, and get well. But Jesus said, no, he said, spoke of his death. And they thought he was speaking about, verse 13, taking a rest. And then Jesus said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead. 
But notice what he says in verse 13. The principle is impossible situations are purposed to strengthen our weak faith. Verse 15, Jesus says, And I am glad for your sakes that I was not there, meaning that I wasn't in Bethany, but that, but that you may believe. What is he saying here? He's saying, because, again, you, you do realize Jesus knows what's going to happen. Right? You do get that. You, you do know that Jesus is in, there's nothing happening that Jesus isn't in total control. He says, I'm glad I wasn't in Bethany, but I'm with you. So that when we go there, you will see that this man has been dead for four days. Because what is going to take place is going to strengthen your weak faith so that you may believe and be strengthened. You realize within a month, Jesus is going to be hoisted on a cross, crucified, buried, and resurrected. But they don't know necessarily, they don't understand the resurrection. And he knows that at that moment, and we know this from reading the Gospels, that the disciples go into absolute panic and fear at the arrest and ultimately of the death of Jesus. What is Jesus doing? He's wanting to make sure that their faith and their confidence in Him is rock solid strong. He wants to help their weak faith. Remember what James tells us in James? James 1 says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials. This is from the NIV. When you face trials of many kinds because you know that the testing of your faith. Testing is to, to prove or to refine something that is that is either lacking or needs strengthening when we test something. That the testing of your faith produces perseverance. That's the stick to But he says in verse 4, let perseverance finish its work. You ever glued something and it said, let it sit for 24 hours. But you couldn't wait 24 hours. So you're going to hang it up on the wall in 10 hours. And you go to bed, and you come in the next morning, and where is it? It's on the floor, broken in those same pieces. Why? You didn't let it finish its job. The glue was designed to do a certain work if, you cooperated with its use. What does James says? Let perseverance. Now what they don't tell you is there's a lot, a lot of trials between those spaces. Let perseverance finish its work. Sometimes that work, it in Bible study, singing, you know what? Letting it finish its work is chemotherapy surgery, physical therapy. You hear what I'm saying? That's when it's hard. It's easy for me to pontificate that verse right now. Because I'm not walking through some of the shadows that you guys are facing. But is the word any less true? Is the word any less True? Is that like, well, yeah, but. What does Scripture say? Impossible situations. Jesus says it's good. Jesus didn't need his faith strengthened, did he? He said it's good for you that I wasn't there. Because you're going to see something that when you doubt, you question. You'll say, yeah, but I was there when old Laz was he was stinking up Bethany. You could smell when they opened that thing. It was it was bad. 
He was dead. There's nobody going to change your mind. Right? So that you would believe. That you would believe. I tell you, when God acts and works on your behalf, and God gives you the grace and the strength and the peace in the middle of when all hell is breaking loose, nobody can rob you and say, God has abandoned you. He's forgotten you. He doesn't love you. No, this is not what you wanted. This is not the circumstance. In fact, you may not even, certainly won't even have any clarity of why all this, but I know, I know that I know that I know that He lives. That He lives and I can face tomorrow. That His strength, His grace is sufficient. Paul said, I asked the Lord three times. And that's just a language meaning he asked him in a completed whole way. It wasn't just, okay, ask one, two. No, he asked, it meant he asked him and he asked him and he asked him and he asked him. Take this thing, this thorn in the flesh away. And the Lord said, but my grace is sufficient. What does he say? My, my presence is sufficient for you in this. And I want you to do what? What was the word we said in the beginning? I want you to depend on me. And God has allowed that to do what? To drive us into a greater dependency. Because we all, all of us, have that tendency that the old hymn writer said, prone to wonder, prone to feel it, prone to leave the God I love. We're all prone. When things start getting bad, oh, we're running back to church. Got to get in church, preacher. Got to get in church. Good, yes, good. Church needs getting you, but good, you come on. Things go well, boy, you dodge the bullet, AWOL. Empty chairs of people that are AWOL were here. Things were rough, things were tough. Things got well, things got better. God answered prayer. Where are they? That's what we all do. I'm not judging them because we're all like that, aren't we? We're all prone that way. Impossible situations, fourthly, we're almost done. Go through these quick. Fourthly, impossible situations reveal the disconnect of what, between what we say and what we believe. We talk. We talk good faith. But do we believe? And I'm not talking about belief that is some intellectual truth. I mean belief that involves a trust, a reliance, that I believe. Notice what Mary, Martha said. Jesus said to her, verse 23, he said, your brother will rise again. And Martha said, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. You see, the Jews, conservative Jews, believed in a future resurrection that the Messiah, even not necessarily Jesus, but their view of Messiah, they believed in a future bodily resurrection. That was one of the big differences between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the Sadducees denied the resurrection future. The Pharisees, Jews, embraced it. Okay, So Martha is very nice and says, well, yes, I, I know that theological understanding, Jesus, and yes, that's right. You see, Martha had correct the- theology. There is a resurrection of the body. She she. As a Jew, she embraced that. Jesus wasn't asking her about her theology. And sometimes we mistake and think that if I believe the right things, if I check the right boxes, if I sign the right document and have the right study Bible or whatever it is, that somehow that somehow insulates me. But oftentimes, like Martha, there is a disconnect between what I say I believe and whether I actually walk and live what I believe. You see, Jesus wasn't asking her about her doctrine of the resurrection. Notice what he says in the next verse, verse 25. He says, I'm not talking about a future resurrection. He says, I am present right now, the resurrection and the life. Martha, I understand you got good theology, you got good knowledge, that Sabbath school's paid off, that's good, but I'm not talking about that. I want you 
to embrace me as I am. That's the fifth time. There's seven times in the Gospel of John that he uses the term, the I am statements. This is the fifth. And he's saying, Martha, I know, I want you to move from a, a, a trust in your doctrine to a full experiential reliance and trust in who I am right now. You see, some of you, you have correct understanding of belief in God. You believe in the virgin birth. You believe in the Bible. You believe in the, you believe Jesus. You believe all these things, but you don't have the experiential, life-giving, spirit-driven life that God promises that where we know that He is. He is a present resurrection and life right now. Not just something biblically I'm hoping in the by and by, but I presently live and know Jesus. And He's as real as the chair I'm sitting in. And I walk with Him. And I talk with Him. And that relationship is vital and it's real. He says, Martha, I, I, I am the resurrection. The woman at the well said, water I'll never have to fill up again. I want that water. And he said, I am the water. Bread, give us that free bread, John 6. He said, I am the bread of life. You see, Jesus allows impossible situations and they immediately bring to reality and show us the disconnect of what we say and versus what we believe. You see, Paul said, I want to know him and the power of his resurrection. He didn't say, I want to know him and the, the, the historicity of the resurrection. That I want to know him as the resurrection and the life right now. When you're in the trenches of battle and death, when you're facing down all hell it seems like, you better have the I am. You better have the I am who says, I am present right now, the resurrection and the life. Look at something real quick. I'm just going to throw it out here. Couldn't fit it in anywhere, but... Look at verse 37. In the midst of all this dialogue, verse 37, and, and some of them, that means some that were in this crowd, made the cynical statement, could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind also have kept this man from dying? Let me tell you just a little quick warning. If you're trying to move into a vital I am the resurrection belief of Jesus, you better stay away from the cynics that you surround yourself with. You wonder why you struggle in faith? Because you got voices around you and people around you that don't believe. They're cynical. Could not he have done something? Well, what's that attitude? Be careful who's speaking into your life. And the last... These impossible situations remind believers of the compassion of Jesus. The compassion of Jesus. Verse 32. Then Mary. Then when Mary came where Jesus was and saw him. She fell down at his feet. Saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And look at verse 33. Therefore. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews, the crowd who came with her weeping, it says that he groaned in the spirit and was troubled. That's the New King James. The New Living says that a deep anger, same verse, but they say a deep anger welled up within him and he was deeply troubled. Really, literally, you could say that when Jesus observed the suffering, the weeping, the crying, when he observed what was happening, the Bible, you could literally say that he was irate. He wasn't irate at the people. Don't, don't, don't confuse that. What is happening here? 
Their loved one is dead. Right? They're weeping. When I weep for my brothers, when I weep for my father, my mother, family, and I'm weeping, that's an anguish. Why is Jesus irate? I'll tell you why. And if you've been in with us on Genesis on Wednesday, this should be really obvious. Why? Because it wasn't supposed to be that way. It was only after Genesis 3 when Adam and Eve rebelled against God that the phrase and then talking about those who were born and the generations after you see a phrase you didn't see before and it's this and then they died and then they died and then they died Jesus says I've come to give life I'm a life giver death was not in the original purpose and plan. And when Jesus saw them weeping, and it says that there was something that arose in him, and it was a righteous anger, yes? What was he angry? The same anger that when you walk through Lakeland Regional, and you see people suffering. Lynette, when you work every day and see people at the nursing home, suffering, dying. There should be a sense of saying, it was not supposed to be this way. But Jesus said, the enemy has come to bring death. He robs, he steals, he destroys. But Jesus said in John 10, I have come that you would have life and have life more abundantly. So when we see this and we think, did Jesus really care? And I tell you one of the most wonderful verses. And some of you who don't memorize scripture, you, here's your scripture you can memorize. Verse 35. Jesus wept. That's it. Jesus wept. There you go. You, you did your first memory verse. But listen, that is the words of the old Puritans. They would say that verse is pregnant with profound truth. What does that tell us? It tells us what the writer of Hebrews would tell us. Listen. The writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 4. Seeing then that we have a great high priest. Who has passed through the heavens. Jesus the son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. Look at this verse 15. For we do not have a high priest. Who's the high priest? Jesus. We do not have a high priest. What does a priest do? He is the mediator. We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, and yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace the time of need. I don't know what your impossible situation is. But more than likely, if you've lived long enough, you'll face, you'll face a few. And you may face a big one that will might be one of the last ones you face. And I cannot stand here and guarantee you how God responds in every time. There are pastors and churches that want to give you how all that. I don't think that's good. I don't think Scripture tells you that. That if you do certain things, if you pray, you're guaranteed a certain result. Let me tell you something. I don't believe that that's, that's biblical. But I do know this. And whatever I'm facing, whatever I'm going through, had to pass through my good shepherd's hands before they came to me. Why? I don't know. I don't know. But am I going to trust him? Am I going to trust him? Am I going to trust him in spite of of everything that's screaming around me to do, to go the other way? Am I going to trust Him 
and leave all the consequences to Him. That's dependency. That's dependency. You don't know that Jesus is all you need till He is all you have. Right? And you know what God is constantly doing in my life? Breaking down all those things I depend on. Just knocking them away. So that the only thing that is left is Christ and Christ alone. On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground. Sinking sand. Let's stand to our feet as we close this morning.